Welcome to Hope Chapel's Sermon Podcast. We hope that you are encouraged by this teaching from God's Word. And we also want to invite you to join us in person at one of our worship services. Saturdays at 6 p.m. and Sunday mornings at either 9 or 11. If you look at your notes, I've listed three verses right off the top. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 13, and Romans chapter 8, verse 29. So look at these verses with me real quickly. Peter says, But grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Should Christians be growing in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus? Yeah, it's a command. It's not a suggestion. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 13, he says, until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature. Should we be maturing as Christians? Yes. And Paul writes again in Romans chapter 8, verse 29, that we are to be conformed to the likeness of his Son. In other words, if we are growing and maturing, we should be looking more and more like who? Like Jesus. So those three verses, what do they have in common? What theme do they have in common? Yeah, growth and maturity. Becoming mature Christians. There's a miraculous dynamic at play in our life. The Holy Spirit lives in us, the Bible tells us. We experience the reality of new life. And just like babies, when babies are born, are they meant to grow? What do they need to grow? They need a number of dynamics to grow. They need food, they need nurture, they need air, they need to breathe, they need all sorts of things. And so you and I, if you are born again, God means for you to grow and to mature. We are new creations, and this growth is critical to our life. But what if we are not growing? What if we are not maturing? What if we are not becoming more like Jesus? What do you think about that? We have reason to wonder if, in fact, we are a Christian. So what do we want to look for in our life as Christians? Am I growing? Am I maturing? Am I becoming more like Jesus? Now, if we are to grow in grace, if we are to mature in our faith, And if we are to be conformed to the likeness of Christ, there are some things that are absolutely necessary in our life. Habits, indispensable habits. Notice, indispensable. These are not options. If you leave any one of them out, chances are you're going to be disabled in your growth, and your growth is going to be limited. We want to be well-rounded Christians, don't we? More and more like Jesus. So what are these habits? I've listed five of them. I think everything can be boiled down to these five habits. And incidentally, it's a correlation to what we talked about last week in terms of being passionate, passionate for God, passionate Christians, passionate for what he's passionate about. These go hand in hand, by the way. How many remember last week? Anybody have any memory of last week? Okay, a few of you. All right, good. Making progress. So look with me. First of all, first habit, Bible study. That should go without saying, but we need to say it, right? The Bible. If you look through your bulletin, you see all these classes designed to enhance your understanding, your utilization, and your uh, obedience to God's word. Bible study. In the book of Acts, in the early church, Luke describes the early church, these early Christians, they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. They were devoted to the word of God. They wanted to know what God's word had to say. They were brand new Christians. They wanted to know about their new faith. A whole new world is opened up to them. When you become a Christian, does not that true for you? you? A whole new world opens up to you? You're going, oh my, this is wonderful. And you want to know more and more about who he is and what he wants, what his will is. Jesus says in John chapter 8, verse 32, if you hold to my teaching, if you hang on to what I'm saying, if 
you pay attention to what I've said. He says that you will what? Know the what? Know the truth. We live in a day and age where people don't say that there is no such thing as truth. There's no such thing as absolute truth. But Jesus seems to think there is. I'm going to take his word over my culture's word. You'll know the truth, and the truth will do what? What's the truth going to do for us? Sets us free. We're no longer confused, no longer lost, no longer in doubt, no longer tossed about by every opinion that comes down. You'll know the truth. You stay in his word, you study his word, you listen to what he has to say, and you begin to put it into practice. You'll know the truth. You'll know the truth. You may not understand it all, but you'll know the truth. You'll know what he says. And as you act on it, you begin to experience greater and greater, greater personal, relational, spiritual freedom. And that's what we really need, huh? So many people bound up today. So many people bound up by fear, anxiety, worry, doubt, conflict. Jesus said, if you stay in my word, is it important to read your Bible every day? Is it important to study it? Oh, absolutely. Paul, I love this. He writes in Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. He commands, this is a command. Again, it's not a suggestion. It's a command that we let the word of Christ dwell in us meagerly. Is that true? No, richly. How well do I know God's word? How well does it fill up my life? Is God's word truly a light for my path and a lamp for my feet? Marvelous. Bible study. Bible study. It's a habit. It has to be developed. It's not something we naturally do. It's a supernatural discipline that we must engage and that we must develop. And how many know that you can start off the new year? I'm going to read my Bible. I'm going to read through my Bible in a year, right? And then very soon you fall behind in your reading. And then you got too much to catch up on. You can still catch up on it. Just turn the TV off. <laughs> turn the computer off. So how's your Bible study? That's what you want to consider. The second discipline we see that's essential is a habit, prayer and worship. Prayer and worship. Again, that early church, Luke writes, that early church was devoted not only to the apostle teaching, they were devoted to prayer. They had an understanding of what it means to pray. If I can go back to my analogy of a baby, a baby needs to eat, true? So you and I, as new baby Christians, we need to eat. We feed on the word of God. As much as we do that, prayer is kind of like breathing. A baby needs to breathe. You and I need to breathe, and we breathe through our prayer Prayer is absolutely important. The Bible is filled with passages exhorting us to pray and to worship God. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, again, the Apostle Paul says very simply, pray once in a while. Pray when you remember. Pray what? Continually. Continually. And Jesus has already told us in Luke chapter 18, verse 1, that if we're not praying continually, we're going to do what? We're going to give up. So many times we look at life situations as being hopeless, and we, what? we give up. It does no good. Keep praying. Don't quit, because the alternative is to give up. I believe that God brings tests into our life. He tests our life, tests our faith. The Bible tells us that. And one of these tests has to do with our prayer life. Will I trust him and continue to seek, continue to ask, continue to knock on that door? He says, if you will persist and persevere in prayer, but the door will be opened. But if you don't, if you just give up and you quit, you'll never realize 
what it is to breathe in the life of God and to know his mercy and grace. In Psalm 95, verse 6, the psalmist says, Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. How's your prayer life? How's your worship life? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all the other things that we're worried about. He says, I got them, I got them covered for you. The third indispensable habit that we must develop is fellowship. Again, from Acts chapter 2, verse 42, that same verse, Luke tells us that these early Christians devoted themselves to the fellowship. Notice the language used. They were devoted to the apostle teaching. They were devoted to prayer. They were devoted to the fellowship. In Luke's gospel, in chapter 4, Luke records that Jesus, on the Sabbath, went to the synagogue. Now notice this, as was his custom. Why did he go to the synagogue? Because it was part of the Jewish community. Why do we come and gather together? Because it's part of our Christian exercise of faith. We need to encourage one another. And that's exactly what happens when you are devoted to the fellowship. The writer to the Hebrews tells us, let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching, the day of judgment. We don't know when it's going to happen. We don't know when the Lord's going to come back, but it's good to be with one another. How many need to be encouraged? All of us. We always need encouragement. And I probably, I can probably make this assumption that when we're done at the end of our time together, you most, you most of it will walk away feeling encouraged. I'm glad I came. How many of us have said that? Even you go to mini church, you know, the devil's going, duh, you're too tired, you're too tired. You can't come to church, you're too tired, you know, sleep in. It's too cold outside. But you drag this old flesh, you say, come on, we're going. And you come, and by the time it's all over, you go home, you go, I'm glad I went. Does that ring a familiar note? Sure it does, absolutely. Devoted to the fellowship. What place does fellowship play in your life as a Christian? We need one another. It's very simple. Service and ministry is the fourth habit. In the second chapter of Ephesians, Paul writes that we're saved by grace through faith, not by works. He says we are God's workmanship. God is working. He's recreated us. And has he recreated us to do what? To do what? Good works, which he prepared in advance for us to do. He's calling us. He's incorporated us into his family. We all have a part to play. And as a baby grows, that baby contributes to the family. It quits just sucking on the family and starts actually contributing. I remember my son was growing up. I said, okay, you have work to do. We all have work to do in this, in this family. You all participate. And the same is true as Christians. Ephesians chapter 4 speaks of God's people being prepared for service. We're meant to serve. We're meant to serve one another. We're meant to serve the Lord. We're meant to serve in this world, dark, dark world. If you look through the history of every social institution ever devised in this land, at the genesis of it are Christians. They started colleges, hospitals, aid societies. You see, it's mind-blowing what Christians have done in terms of serving and we all have a place to serve. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. You read the whole chapter, 12, 13, and 14. Uh, speaks about each one of us being spiritually gifted. You have, if you are truly a Christian, you're born again. You have been given by God, by His Spirit, who lives in you. You've been given a spiritual gift or gift mix. And this is where you fit into the body of Christ. This is where you fit into the church. So many times Christians go, I, I don't know what I'm, my, my purpose is here. 
realize what your gifting is. And once you realize what your gifting is, now you begin to see where God has already designed for you to participate in his body. And all that participation contributes to the building up of the body of Christ, we're told. Am I making sense? Do you know what your gifting is? Do you know what your ministry is? Do you know what God has already designed before the foundation of the world, before you were ever born? Do you know what God means for you to do and how you participate? It doesn't have to be in some formalized ministry in the church, but it is something that contributes to the overall well-being in the name of Christ. Am I making sense? There's a fifth habit we must absolutely continue to develop. And this is just as indispensable as the others. And this is the habit of giving. Should Christians be giving people? We talked last week in the context of passion for God. We talked about resource investment. Does anybody remember that one? Some of you do. Okay. God has given us time, energy, giftings, abilities, resources of all sorts, and he means for us to be like him. Is God a giver? Absolutely. Jesus laid down a general principle in Luke's gospel. He says, give, and it might be given to you. What does he say? No, it will be given. It's a law of reciprocity. I promise you, do this experiment. As you're walking down the street and there's other people walking towards you, smile at every single one of them. If you can make eye contact, you smile at them. I guarantee you, you will get a smile in return. Give and it will be given to you. It's a simple illustration. And it's so much fun to do it. People can't not smile at you. Why are you smiling at me? I just smiling at you. They have to smile back. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, he says, just as you excel in everything. He's talking to the Corinthians. He says to them, you excel in everything. In faith, you have great faith. In speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in your love for us. He says, see that you also excel in this grace of giving, that you be a giver. He says this in 1 Corinthians 16. On the first day of every week, each of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income and give it as an offering. Regular, consistent giving on the part of God's people. Every aspect of our life. Again, giving must be a habit in our life, just like studying the Bible, just like prayer, fellowship, and ministry. Did you know that half of Jesus' parables deal with money? He talks a lot about money. Why would Jesus talk a lot about money, do you think? Is money something important? How many say it's important to my life? How many, how many, how many have their mindset on money a lot? <laughs> Getting it, keeping it, how do I, what do I do with it, right? It's essential, isn't it? He talks a lot about money because it's such an issue for us. He knows we need it. Does he want us to have it? Absolutely. Absolutely. There are four key Bible words. Let me share these Bible words with you. Believe. Is that a key Bible word? How about pray? How about love? How about give? Now notice how many times these words are mentioned in the Bible. The word believe is mentioned 272 times. The word pray is mentioned 371 times. The word love is mentioned 714 times. How many times do you think the word give is mentioned? 2,162 times. I think there's an emphasis there. Is God a giver? Absolutely. John 3.16 tells us, 
He so loved us that he what? He gave. What did he give? He'd look around heaven and say, well, what do I have here I don't need? I can give away, won't press me too much, won't cause me too much grief and sorrow. What did he give? His son. He gave his son, his one and only unique son. He gave his son. It's not a quid pro quo, to use the language most recently bantied about. (laughs) He gave. No strings attached. He gave. That whosoever, whosoever would believe would not perish but have everlasting life. He gave his son. Whoever, whoever would believe in him, whoever would open themselves up, whoever would respond to that gift. I want to share with you seven benefits to your life. Seven benefits of giving. You ready? Giving makes me, first of all, more like God. It makes me more like God. As we just said, God is a giver. Ephesians chapter 4, Paul tells, tells us that God gave gifts to his church. Spiritual gifts, the gift of life. Giving makes me more like God. Are we to be more like him? Yeah, that was our opening thesis. We're to grow, mature, become more like Jesus. Number two, giving draws me close to God. How does giving draw me close to God? Interesting, Jesus says in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 6, in the Sermon on the Mount, for where your treasure is, there your what? heart will be also. Does that sound like you're being closer to God? Absolutely. You see, where my, where's my attention going to be focused? If I'm investing in the world, where's my attention going to be focused? On my worldly investments. If I'm investing with God in heaven, where's my attention going to be more focused? Yeah, I'm going to be drawn closer to him. Does that make sense to you? Number three, giving is an antidote to materialism. Are we tempted to be given to the material things of this life? Oh, yeah, got to have this, got to have that. Got to have the latest phone, the latest gizmo, the latest this. Again, from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says this, Do not store for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust Destroy where thieves break in and steal. But store for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In other words, the emphasis is not on storing up stuff in this life. How many don't realize the more stuff you get, the more insurance you have to have? (laughs) You ever notice that? I watch Antiques Roadshow. You know, they get these treasures they find in their garage or some crazy place. And they say, well, your insurance value, ooh, I've got to increase my insurance. You've got, you got to take care of more stuff rather than living simply. First Timothy chapter 6. Paul writes to Timothy. He says, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant or to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasures for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so they may take hold of that life that is truly life. In other words, we have to have through vision and we have to see there is a life that we're going to live for all eternity all eternity. Am I going to just only solely invest here, or am I going to invest there? Number four, giving strengthens my faith. Strengthens my faith. The devil is always, always going to attack at this point. 
Always. And you have to know that. And again, God will allow those tests. What am I going to do? Am I going to submit to what God tells me to do? Or am I going to lean on my own understanding? In Luke chapter 6, verse 38, Jesus says, Give, and it will be given to you. It's a command. It's not, again, a suggestion. He means for us to be like him. He's giving. He wants us to be giving. Tragically, he has to command us to do it because most of the time we don't do it willingly. We do it grudgingly. But it's a command with a promise. What's the promise? He says, it'll be given to you a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, poured into your lap. The picture is you're going to the market and you've got your grain sack and the, the merchant is going to pour grain into your sack and you know how you shake it and make room for more. Pressed down, shaken together, running over, it'll be poured into your lap. An abundance. This is the picture. He says, for with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Again, it's a principle. The law of reciprocity works every single time, kind of just like the law of gravity. We show our faith by our giving, our serving. As we do so, our faith is, in fact, strengthened. You see that every single time. It's like a muscle. If you don't exercise the muscle, what happens to the muscle? It grows weak and flaccid. But you exercise that muscle, you strengthen that muscle. And again, giving does this for us. In Proverbs chapter 3, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your, understand, your own understanding. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. In other words, you've got to be all in. All in with you. Lord, I, you said it. Okay, I'm going to do things your way. I'm not going to lean on my own understanding. I'm not trying to try to figure this out and find out where the loophole is. People were always asking, you know, what if I, what if I don't go there? Trust God. Do what he says. He's designed us. He's designed the way to life. It makes sense for us to walk after him. So he says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. Then your barns will be filled to overflowing. Your vats will brim over with new wine. So if you have a barn and a vat that you want to brim over, honor the Lord with your wealth. Number five, giving is an investment for eternity. Again, that Matthew chapter 6 passage and 1 Timothy chapter 6, we, we already read those verses, but really it's an investment for eternity. That's what he tells us. You may not see it, you may not understand it, you may not get it, but when you get to eternity, you'll be glad you did it. I can tell you that because Jesus says it. Someone once said, you can't take it with you but you can send it on ahead. There's no U-holes behind a hearse. You ever notice? Number six, giving blesses me in return. Giving blesses me. We all understand that. We all understand that. As, as we give and are gracious and we reach out to others, we seek to bless their life in one way or another, you get a blessing in return. Isn't that true? It works every time. Proverbs eleven twenty five: A generous man will prosper. Not maybe, not might, will. A generous man will prosper. Why? Because that's how God designed things. He who refreshes others will himself be refreshed. Not maybe, not might, will be refreshed. Isn't that encouraging? Proverbs 22.9, a generous man himself will be blessed. Psalm 112, verse 5, good will come to him who is generous. Again, generosity is, ought to be a hallmark for every single Christian. God has given us what we do not deserve. Isn't that true? 
I tell people constantly, how are they say, how are you? I said, better than I deserve. God has blessed my life. I have no complaints. Lastly, giving makes me happy. How many want to be happy? Oh, just a few of you. Oh, my gosh. I would think more people would want to be happy in this life. Acts chapter 20, verse 35, we read this. It is more blessed, or that word could be also translated happy, is more blessed to give than to receive. Sometimes we like to reverse the order. More blessed to receive than to give. What am I going to get? What am I going to get? First Chronicles chapter 29, verse 9, when David had received the offering for the building of the temple, we're told that after David and all the leaders of Israel had given abundantly, the people rejoiced. The people rejoiced. Great rejoicing over this whole issue of giving. Are you with me so far? Now, I've given you a little gift-giving survey in your notes, if you look at it. The question is, is it easier for you to give a gift or to receive a gift? Look with me. I give gifts at Christmas because, if you look at the right-hand column, there's a whole bunch of reasons why people give gifts. I give a birthday gift to my spouse, my best friend, because I give birthday gifts to my parents, children, because I give a gift to my boss, my teacher, my pastor, because I give a surprise gift to someone, because I give to God through his church, because and I'll leave you to review that and to fill in the blank and give you a response. One reason we give to God is because he already owns everything. Do we know that? God owns everything already. He is the creator. He is the original owner of all everything, and we are his what? We're his stewards. We're his stewards. He has a legitimate claim to that which we are managing. His ownership includes everything. In Genesis 1.1, he created the heavens and the earth. He owns it all. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, he created the man and the woman. He owns us. In Psalm 24.1, the psalmist tells us the earth and everything in it belongs to him. In Psalm 50, all the animals, the cattle on a thousand hills belongs to him. In Haggai, don't you love that name, Haggai? I've never met anybody who want to name their child Haggai. <laughs> Haggai 2.8 says, all the gold and the silver is his. When he created Adam and Eve, they were given charge. They were given stewardship over creation. They were to care for God's creation. He says, in effect, care for the animals, care for the earth, take care of things. I'm entrusting creation to you. They were to manage their own personal lives. They were to manage the earth as well in all it contained. They were given the gifts of life, relationship, and responsibility. How did they manage these gifts that God entrusted to them? How'd they do it? How'd they do? How would you grade them? A, B, C, D, F. They failed, didn't they? They absolutely failed. Instead of choosing life, they chose slavery to sin and death. They chose, if you will, the easy way. Not to obey him, not to trust him. They took the easy way. Have you ever given a gift to someone that you thought was the perfect gift for them? The perfect gift. Have you ever done that? 
You're so excited. And then instead of liking the gift or even using it, the person put it away or simply forgot about it or worse yet threw it away or maybe even regifted it. How'd you feel? Did you immediately plan to give that person another gift of even greater value? You see, what we do with the gift speaks loudly of what we think of the gift giver. Isn't that true? Aunt Mabel gives you a gift, and it's not your cup of tea. And so you have a choice to make, don't you? But your choice is largely dictated by what you think and believe and feel towards Aunt Mabel. If you really love your Aunt Mabel, what are you going to do with that gift? <laughs> You're going to display it because Aunt Mabel could come over any time. <laughs> and you know she's going to look for that gift, right? What we do with a gift is it tells us volumes of what we think and believe about the gift giver. Am I making sense? How many are glad that God didn't give up on us? Yeah. Instead of turning away from us who rejected his gift, God gave again. He gave again. And this time the gift was even more precious. The greatest gift ever given. He gave us his own son. And Jesus told his followers he'd come from God. And he delivered God's message of love and forgiveness. He told people about God's desire to renew the relationship for which they were originally created. And then Jesus gave his life. And a final personal gift, he gave himself. He gave himself for us and for our sin. And then through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God gave a second gift. He gave a path for those of us who would choose to regain our relationship with him. That second gift is the Holy Spirit and being born again in new life. You see, Jesus' death is sufficient for all, but efficient only for those who will trust him, only for those who say yes, yes. How have you responded to God's indescribable gift? How have you responded to it? Have you responded by returning your life and giving your life back to him? That's what he desires. Are you passionate for him? Are you hungry to grow and mature? You see, sin turns us away from God. Even as a believer, when you sin, you turn your back on him. That's why it's important to confess, to admit, to say, Lord, I have done thus and such. I've been thinking this way. I've turned from you. I come to confess my sin. Confidence, you are faithful and just to forgive me and cleanse me of all of my unrighteousness. The Bible doesn't tell us to beg for forgiveness. We're already forgiven. But we turn our back. We move away. It's imperative that we move back, that we take that step and acknowledge where we have been and what we have done. Does that make sense to you? Nothing we can do will make us good enough to deserve the gift of Jesus Christ. God gave him to us simply because he loves us. Mind-blowing. Mind-blowing. If we just sit and look at our own life, we go, you love me, me? But that's what grace is all about, isn't it? Grace, grace. When I used to discipline my son growing up, he'd say, may I, may I appeal? <laughs> I said, what's your appeal? May I have grace? <laughs> You had to laugh. How could you spank when someone was saying that to you? The gift of love through Jesus Christ, no one, no one deserves. But we can make a choice, can't we? We can choose how we respond to God's love through Christ. This is where I want you to look with me at Luke chapter 19. 
Let's look at how one person responded to God's greatest gift. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but being a short man, he could not because of the crowd. So he ran ahead, climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, you vile, wicked sinner. No, he didn't say that. Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he's gone to be a guest of a what? Of a sinner. Now Jericho was in a main agricultural area in Judea. And because of its mild climate, it was, among other things, the winter quarters for the Jewish leaders, the Herod family. They would winter there. It was also a center of trade and commerce located on several commercial routes. So it was a, this is a big deal, Jericho. It's, a, it's an important city. And here's Jesus. As many Jews are going to Jerusalem, it's on the road to Jerusalem for Passover. And Jesus and his disciples are taking that same route to Jerusalem. And they pass through Jericho. We're told that Zacchaeus is a chief tax collector. He's wealthy. He's a renegade Jew. He works for the Romans, who the Jews absolutely hated, but he worked for the Romans collecting taxes from his own people. And he could extort them. He could charge them whatever he wanted, and he had the Roman garrison behind him to back him up. You couldn't argue. You had to pay whatever Zacchaeus would charge you. Isn't that delightful? Do you think he was a favorite amongst the people there in Jericho? Hardly. I don't know of any tax people that are favorites. He was literally an outcast in Jewish society. Now, over the years, he had managed to accumulate a great deal of wealth, again, by extorting his own people. And Jesus stops. He looks up in that tree. And he says, Zacchaeus, I must stay at your house. Incredible. I want to stay at your house, not the residence of the local religious leaders, which you would think he would want to do. And the people are absolutely stunned. How could Jesus make such a poor choice? Doesn't he know about Zacchaeus? Does he know about Zacchaeus? Oh, yeah. He knows everything about Zacchaeus. The people of Jericho may have been outraged, but Jesus' decision to attend to Zacchaeus changed his life. Changed his life. For the first time, he wasn't an outcast. For the first time, he wasn't condemned. For the first time, he wasn't rejected. Jesus accepted Zacchaeus, warts and all, if you know that expression, right? And that acceptance moved Zacchaeus to change both his attitudes and his actions. Look at verse 8. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. And Jesus said, no, 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 Zacchaeus, we just require 10%. Then somebody in the crowd says, oh, he's going to be in a lot of trouble giving away so much. How did Zacchaeus respond to Jesus' love and Jesus' acceptance with no conditions attached? Notice Jesus doesn't tell him what to do, does he? What's his, what's his response to this? First he says, I'm going to give half of everything I own, half, to the poor. 
What a generous gift. Most people would stop there, but not Zacchaeus. He goes on and he says he made a promise to pay back everyone he's cheated. Now, by law, a robber had to repay double the amount that they had stolen. Zacchaeus went beyond the law and he gave what? Four times the amount. He gave because he had to, because Jesus commanded it, right? No, he gave because he wanted to, not because he had to. It was the response. The response generated in him simply because of Jesus' acceptance and love towards him. He could not give enough. He could not give enough. Is that a beautiful picture? Now, look with me at verse 9. Verse 9 says, Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house. How can he say that? Because of, Nick, because of Zacchaeus' response. Gave evidence of a changed heart. A changed life. Salvation has come to this house. What a difference. What a difference. There are five types of giving. Did you know that? Five types of giving. Let me list them for you. There's guilty giving. That's the kind of giving that the pastor always asks for. Legalistic giving. Grateful giving. Selfish giving. Faithful giving. What type of giving was Zacchaeus doing? I'll leave you to consider that. Jesus brings that same offer of salvation to you and to me. Without Jesus, we're lost. With Jesus, we're loved. Without Jesus, we're lost. With Jesus, we're loved. Say it with me. Without Jesus, we're lost. With Jesus, we're loved. Without Jesus, the future holds no hope for us. With Jesus, the future includes eternal life. Hmm. Hmm. Because God loved us, he sent his son. And because Jesus loves us, we can, in fact, pass that love on to other people. Why would we not? Why would we not? And one way to pass on God's love is through our giving. Giving to needs that God gives us visibility of. Giving to the poor. Giving to God's missions. Giving to God through the local church. All this simply shows our desire to be more loving and more willing to share what he's entrusted to us. And remember, whatever he's entrusted to us is a trust, isn't it? What am I going to do with it? What am I going to do with it? In the process of our giving, we grow more and more aware of God's love. Can you outgive him? Absolutely not. He says, if you give, it's going to be given to you. I know people over the years in our church who, who, who have become vehicles, pipelines for giving. And the more they give, God just pours more into their life. There was a man, there's a man in our church, and a while back he came to me and his wife abandoned him, left him, and then sued him. And, and they were very, very well off. I mean, millions. And she sued him for a tremendous amount of money. And he came to me and said, what should I do? And he was really ticked. And I, I listened to him, listened to him, listened to him, and I said, but let me just ask you a question. Whose money is it? God's. It's not your money. It's God's money. Give her what she wants. Give her more than what she wants. How many, how many understand what I'm talking about? Man, his jaws were tightened. I said, it's God's money. You give her more than what she wants. You bless her. Can God replace that? Well, 
I don't know. So he did what I suggested. He came back to me just a few months later. He says, you're not going to believe this. I said, yes, I am. <laughs> I said, God's blessed you, hasn't he? He's restored what the locusts have eaten, and he's given you more than you gave. He's a giver. He's learned it. He's a pipeline for giving. It's absolutely amazing. And he's free. He just is free. He learned the secret. He learned the secret. The best way to respond to God's gift is by giving. But you first must give yourself to him. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul, describing the Macedonian believers who were dirt, dirt poor people, gave beyond their ability to give. How do you give beyond your ability? God has to supply that. He says, but first they gave themselves to the Lord. Have you given yourself to him? If you're not growing, if you're not maturing, if you're not becoming more like Jesus, maybe you may consider giving yourself to him. I'm yours. Take me. Take me. Whatever you want, I'm yours. You'll be free. You'll be free. Amen? Are you glad you came this morning? All right. Now listen, when people call and they say, What's Zach preaching on? Don't tell him giving. <laughs> tell him spiritual maturity. <laughs> All right? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. We love you this morning. Lord, as we prepare for the, your table, we ask you, Lord, just to refresh us. Come to your table and you refresh us. We give you thanks. Amen. On behalf of the Hope Chapel family, we want to thank you for joining us. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can visit www.hopechapel.org.